Welcome to this episode of the Petri Dish Podcast. I'm Sabria. I'm Rachel. And I'm Lindsay. And on this episode, we are going to be discussing Angelina Jolie's op-ed in the New York Times about her decision to get a preventative double mastectomy due to the fact that she found out she has a mutation in the BRCA1 gene. So we'd like to touch on some facts. For example, what is the BRCA1 gene? What does it do? Um, some statistics. Um, the gene patents um, surrounding the recent Supreme Court ruling casing and some other options that are available to people who find out that they have this mutation. So there's there was a lot of um, coverage of this op-ed in the news and um, there's a lot of different facets to what um, what goes into this decision. Uh, and a lot of people were highlighting Angelina's bravery in coming out and talking about such a personal issue and you know I for one think it's it's great because it's getting a discussion going about what these this complex field of cancer genetics and personal information that's associated with it it's it's a huge it's a huge issue and we're gonna try to dissect it as much as possible well and especially since we feel like the word cancer <clears throat> affects so many people I feel like there's everyone has been Either they've known someone in their family, friends, friends of families that have been touched by, by cancer, and specifically breast cancer. The American Cancer Society states that breast cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death in women, exceeded only by lung cancer, and that the chance that breast cancer will be responsible for a woman's death is about 1 in 36. Which is huge. I mean, I think most people can come up with you know, personal stories in their lives that um, relate to this, but what it, how does this relate specifically to um, Angelina's case? Well, I think that one, well, I think what we touched on, one of, two of the reasons that this got a ton of attention in the media was one, because she's a celebrity, um, and two, because cancer is an incredibly personal and intimate disease, um, and this decision, it was not an easy one. And so what she states is, um, that she has this really rare mutation of the BRCA1 gene. Um, only about 5% to 10% of breast cancers are caused by this. And if you find out that you have this mutation, you have a 65% chance of actually getting breast cancer. So now that we know some statistics and the likelihood of developing cancer that's associated with the BRCA gene, let's take a step back and kind of talk about what the actual gene is. So BRCA, or BRCA, stands for breast cancer gene one. The gene itself, um, there's a second gene also, BRCA2, which we're not gonna talk about as much since it wasn't the highlight of that op-ed piece, but BRCA1 and BRCA2 are two genes. Um, they are found to be associated by cancer due, via tumor suppression. And it has been shown that scientists have been able to identify that there are a thousand mutations known in BRCA1 and 800 mutations known in BRCA gene 2 that have been associated to lead, that can lead to uh, not only breast cancer, but also ovarian cancer, fallopian tube cancer, pancreatic cancer, and prostate cancer. And so for the BRCA1, you know, where is it, what does it do? It's expressed in the cells of breasts and other tissues, and its function is to help repair damaged DNA or destroy cells if the DNA cannot be repaired. A mutation in the BRCA genes can be can have impairment on its function, and it normally functions as part, the BRCA1 gene normally functions as part of, of, a, of a complex that helps to repair DNA damage. And so you can imagine if this gene is mutated and it's not functioning properly, your cells um, will then not have the correct ability to repair DNA damage, which 
or, or double-stranded breaks. And so normally during a cell's life, double-stranded breaks occur during um, replication in different parts of the cell cycle. However, you need the function of these complexes and other proteins to actually repair the damage so the cell can function normally and divide normally and continue to grow as normal. However, if you have a mutation in this and this cannot function properly, you then have a breakdown of the whole process and then the cells might not grow um, checked. So they're going to grow out of control. They're going to start to form tumors and then you can have all these downstream effects that are all associated right. with cancer. But Which we're is not one of the hallmarks of cancer, right? Just this kind of uncontrollable cell division. So this process occurs usually through a variety of steps and the importance of this gene because it, uh, it encodes something that helps to repair DNA, it means that any mutation that can happen randomly, um, it's not always going to be something that's going to transform a cell to be able to grow. Uh, indefinitely, but uh, the more damage is done, the higher the chances that one of these mistakes is going to lead to uncontrolled growth, and that's effectively what cancer is. It's these, it's these cells that have acquired an ability that they shouldn't have to grow more than they should, uh, and then they take on other things that can cause them to become really malignant, but this first all of these changes that happen can be affected by something like DNA repair genes. And I just want to point out a caveat just right now that since we are, there are the two genes, there's the BRCA1 and the BRCA2, I don't want them to be mistaken as being um, completely associated. They're two separate genes and they belong to two separate gene families. Um, and we're not going to, maybe later we could touch on a podcast that goes in specifically about more about genes and DNA and everything like that, but they um, have two normal functions that are both associated with DNA repair. So we know a fair amount at this point about what this gene does. Um, it was actually discovered in an academic lab and then was um, it became a um, so you may have heard recently in the Supreme Court they made a decision uh, about whether or not this one company could hold the patent to this particular the test of this particular gene. Well, and Sorry to interrupt you, but the reason that they think that they can hold the patent is because they cloned it first, right? The gene was really discovered in an academic lab. Um, so BRCA1 was first cloned in 1994. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've only known about this for a relatively short time. However, uh, soon after it was discovered, uh, this uh, biotech startup called Myriad Genetics, Genetics um, thank you, uh, bought, they filed a patent for the sequence of this gene, and um, a whole it's actually a whole variety of patents around the use of this gene sequence, um, and this is what the Supreme Court uh, recently took up, and it has implications for uh, the patenting of all genes that occur naturally in in our um, DNA. In addition to not only patenting the gene, they also it seems from a little bit of the research that I've gone through is that they also wanted to be able to patent the research around the BRCA1. So this um, also led to the fact that they developed genetic testing uh, and they actually hold the patent for that as well, correct? Right, so, so this has a few implications and the one that's been talked about the most in the news is concerning tests for patients, which is a huge issue, obviously. Um, cost has been one thing that's been cited because this company is the only one that at that point um, held the patent for this test, they were the only one that could perform it, so they could price it at whatever they wanted. And they actually priced it at $3,000, and that is a large amount of money for a lot of people to find out whether or not 
they have this mutation or not. I mean, I feel like it's uh, definitely one of those, it's like, okay, well, I need to know if I have this, but I don't, I can't actually afford to know if I have this. Yeah, if someone does go through making that, that hard decision to finding out the information, what they may or may not carry this gene, I think it's a hard decision in itself to make and then to have the obstacle of money um, come up is another issue. But so, so this, the financial concern and um, patients' rights is a huge part of it. Another part that hasn't been discussed as much in the news that you may not have heard about is the fact that this actually prevents further research on this gene from other people. So, for example, we know only so much about certain mutations in the BRCA1 gene and their association with cancer, but to really know how it affects the entire population, we need to be sequencing more people, finding out um, better statistics as to you know which which mutations actually mean something mm -hmm, effectively exactly. in terms of your cancer risk and how much of a cancer risk it is and that's very important because making these decisions is hugely dependent for example in her op-ed uh, Angelina Jolie mentioned that her personal risk based on the mutation she had was 87 percent which is pretty high that may not be the case for everyone who has a mutation in this gene so I think it also goes back to the idea of quality control, whereas I think in the scientific community we can all agree that having more than one person do research on a particular topic mm -hmm. allows you to come at it from many different angles. Absolutely. And I just think the idea of inspiring competition just to ensure the highest quality is reached and that maybe taking a different view or looking at it from a different scientific perspective could really make a different could lead to a different outcome or make leaps and bounds in the actual production right. of the research. Mm -hmm. Well, and I can only imagine what would have happened if this ruling, you know, went the other way, so where they said, oh, but you can patent the gene. So let's just back up and just go over the actual ruling. Yeah, so what they actually decided, you, you may or may not have heard about, is that uh, there was a majority, I think unanimous, decision that by the Supreme Court that in this case where um, doctors, interest groups, and the American Civil Liberties Union um, brought a suit. So what the Supreme Court uh, was deciding uh, just a few weeks ago was upon a case that had been brought against this company, Muria Genetics, which held the patent to this gene. Um, and the, the plaintiffs in this case were doctors, interest groups, and the American Civil, Civil Liberties Union. And um, they were deciding whether or not this company had the right to patent this gene. And the argument by the plaintiffs was that uh, this is a gene that we all have. You know, it's a naturally occurring phenomenon. And in the patent law, if it's a naturally occurring phenomenon, like, you know, a, a, a plant that just occurs in nature, you cannot have a patent on that plant. You can only patent, for example, if you make a, you know, transgenic or something, something that you've changed uh, that doesn't occur naturally. So, so this is the question that they were trying to answer, and what they all concluded was that because this gene is naturally occurring, this company did not have the right to patent it. And scientist who actually discovered the gene, Mary Claire King, um, had this to say about the Supreme Court ruling, which was that you know, genes had been patented before, the cystic fibrosis gene was patented, but I don't think anyone from the U.S. National Institutes of Health or anywhere else anticipated the level of patent protection Myriad has engaged in. What was different about Myriad was its, insistent that it's, was its insistence that it was the only entity that could do the test and its aggressive efforts to shut down anyone else. And so one of the reasons they brought the case on was on behalf of what Rachel said, people who need a test and who are not able to get a second opinion. Yeah, there was a lot of um, discussion, I think, that talked about how a second opinion, and that kind of brings to mind one of the stats that I came across in which 
people who even have the test, they have found that 10% of women will receive ambiguous results. So you, obviously you have the positive results or the negative results, but then there's this 10% that they say is ambiguous. Mm -hmm. And there was a research, there was a group that had done some research on it, and they found that um, if there was another company or another research group that had the ability to develop another test, you could then seek a second opinion. You could have a second test to mm -hmm. really alleviate some of those ambiguous results. Because you, you could imagine having made a decision to have the test, Save going up through all the, the money. Yes, and then having ambiguous results that kind of leaves someone in a very awkward place, if, especially if they don't have a second opinion. However, they did suggest um, some options for people who do fall into that category, which I think were really important and worth noting, in which they said, since it is hereditary, if you have ambiguous results, you can actually have another family member also be tested. Hmm. You can also look oh, that's further. Interesting. Mm -hmm. You can look further into your family tree. Um, maybe you weren't as close with one side of the family or another, and if you were able to gain access to that information, it could also help you better piece together whether or not you would fall into a positive or negative instead of this ambiguous case. But I thought it was pretty interesting. Well, and I feel like just on a science level, every whenever you do a test in the lab, you know, it's you might get one result one time and you might get another result another time. And I feel like even though I, I know that this is you know gene sequencing and you know, you can tell if you have it or not. But to, well, when you fall into this, like, ambiguous area... Just because of the number of mutations, they don't know what every single... Over, I think the number is over a thousand mutations have been identified. And like Rachel mentioned earlier, that there's no, there's in no the way of knowing... gene? Yes. Wow. And there's no way of knowing if that mutation will increase your risk. Like, there is some correlation, but it's not completely worked out. So what do you think is, like, the driving reason why they wanted to do this? Just money? Because they were like, we want to be the only people that do this. We want... Yeah, I, I can't see any other motivation other than money. Fame and glory. <laughs> I, think, I think that's what comes down to a lot of the patenting. And I think, especially in science, you need ways to make money. You need to be able to do your research. And I think more recently, especially with these court cases, that patenting and then having the money from your patents is obviously very appealing. But right. I think the question goes back to the entire point of this case is that can you patent naturally occurring things? Right, and, and some of the controversy here, some of the people that were pro the patent stance on this particular case, uh, were factoring in that, you know, obviously it takes a lot of research, a lot of investment to make discoveries in science, and some of this is done by the public sector, and some of it is done by the private sector, and some have argued that patents stimulate uh, innovation for the reason that they give a financial incentive to these companies. You know, if you're going to put a bunch of research into something, costs money, you need to get it back. Um, that said, we have a pretty large publicly funded, well, that's, that's <laughs> an issue for another time, but uh, our government funds quite a bit of research into these areas, and the problem is, as, as we mentioned earlier, if you have less groups working on something, the less you're going to know, period. You know, you restrict that knowledge, you restrict further research, it's going to have its consequences. And I think in this case, it's really tangible what the effects of that could be on real people. So I guess now we could probably talk about the actual test itself. It's basically um, the test, your doctor or whoever you're going to see, they're going to acquire cells. They can do this via blood test or even like a mouthwash. And then it's going to be sent for sequencing. It's pretty straightforward. Um, I just, obviously knowing the gene sequence and all the information associated right. with it is really what's important. Um, but what happens if you actually come back and you have the results that you are a person that can ta that has mutations in the BRCA1 gene? What can you do? 
So one of the options, obviously, is that um, you could have this double mastectomy. This is what's been talked about. But there are a variety of other options to consider, possibly first, because even though this may be a really uh, rational decision for a lot of people, and it might make sense in some cases, you have other options that are maybe a little less invasive. Women who find out that they have this BRCA1 mutation, 30% of them opt for this preventative double mastectomy. So what are the other 70% doing? So again, they're especially with all the new publicity that has been given to having uh, mastectomies, um, especially with celebrities like Angelina Jolie coming out and telling their story, it's important to also note that there are other less severe um, options to take. So just to name a couple, um, some people suggest surveillance, and what that means is that women will go for more frequent mammograms, and they'll also go for more, clin for more frequent clinical breast exams. So obviously everyone's heard about doing their own breast mm -hmm. exams at home, but you can go to your doctor and have them done more frequently. Mm -hmm. Additionally, there's um, breast cancer screening that involves uh, MRI. It gives a much more um, in-depth picture of your breast tissue and whether or not they can identify cancerous tumors or cells. It's actually um, uh, recommended for women who are high risk in general if you have a family history whether or not you have an actual BRCA mutation and the images are very clear from the MRI whereas if you've seen an image of a mammogram sometimes it takes really, I mean it certainly takes a very trained eye to see what's going on there whereas the MRI it's, mm -hmm. it's a much clearer picture. Um, and not to rule out the other types of cancer that can be caused for this. So again, if you are worried about your risk of ovarian cancer being increased by containing by having this gene, there are other surveillance methods in which they do trans, uh, transvaginal ultrasounds. They can do blood tests for certain antigens, and then they, again, just do clinical clinical exams. So just staying on top of it and more frequently going. That way, they're able to catch cancer earlier, and that way they can they feel that if they catch it early enough that they can have better chances of treating it successfully. And just to make one point about the, we haven't talked too much about ovarian cancer, um, but it is a lot harder to catch than breast cancer because of just the anatomical location. It's, it's much less frequently screened. Most women go for regular mammograms, but you don't normally have a um, a screening for ovarian cancer, but if you have any family history, keep that in mind. It's very important to be on top of that. Additionally, they suggest that you can sometimes use drugs, different drug treatments. So tamoxifen has actually been approved by the U.S. Um, FDA as a breast cancer treatment to reduce the risk of breast cancer development in premenopausal women and postmenopausal postmenopausal women who are at increased risk. Um, additionally, there's a second drug, roloxifene, um, which again was approved by the FDA for also reducing the risk of developing breast cancer in postmenopausal women. So there are a couple options, um, but in light of the story that we're highlighting today, maybe we should talk a little bit more about her decision. Yeah, so I, th I think what's really striking about um, the op-ed that Angelina Jolie wrote is, you know, she she walks your, the reader through all of the different factors that go into these decisions, and I think what's really important about it is that you, um, as a patient, in, in general, for your own medical treatment, you stay aware of what risks are, you talk to your doctor, you know, you have to be an informed patient in this day and age, and a lot of uh, decisions in terms of these sort of risks that are unquantifiable, you know, you may not, you may get, can't, you may never get cancer 
if you have a BRCA1 mutation, but you have a higher risk and you have to weigh the pros and cons of treatment, side effects, all these different things that may not be so obvious. It's a very personal decision, but the more informed you are, the better you are. So well, the better you are equipped to make that decision. Right. So again, just to go over some risk factors that you might want to consider if um, you were thinking about getting the testing, again, only a 5 to 10 percent of all breast cancers are caused by containing this mutation, but if you, if you yourself have been diagnosed with breast cancer at an early age, or your mother, sister, or brother were mother, sister, or daughter were diagnosed with breast cancer at an early age or ovarian, or ovarian cancer at any age. Um, additionally, a woman in your family, including first or second degree relatives, so that includes your grandmother or your aunts, um, if they have been just um, diagnosed with breast or ovarian cancer. In addition, I just want to point out, I don't know if we highlighted this yet, but also men are at risk for developing breast cancer mm -hmm. if they contain this gene. Which I feel like is the, no one really ever talks about. No, it's, I mean, it, it isn't as common by any means, but it certainly happens, and if you have a family history, it's something to be very aware of. So I just listed some of the more general um, risk factors that have been associated with people who should be considering getting the BRCA1 and BRCA2 testing. Um, and I just want to point out that an interesting note that I actually called my insurance company this morning and asked them. Which is our insurance company. <laughs> to ask them if they in fact covered it because it's a little bit unclear and there's a lot of information out there in blogs and certain um, opinion pieces in which some people claim that they can't, they're not covered. And so I wanted to know if our insurance actually did cover it. And so what I found was that yes, our insurance does in fact cover the testing if in fact you fall into certain categories that. Um, but basically fit the criteria that I just listed for the risk factors. And if you have any, if you have any family members or you yourself have been diagnosed at a young age for cancer, then you are automatically considered um, eligible for the test and they consider it medical, medically necessary. And it's important to note that, you know, this isn't just the insurance companies talking, you know, unnecessary testing is not going to be necessarily good for anyone, especially since there's a lot of ambiguity. So don't, you know, not everyone needs to rush out and get tested for this. Just make sure yeah. that it's, it's, it makes sense based on your family. And additionally, it's his only our. I've only reached out to our particular insurance company, so it Blue might Cross not Blue be. Shield. It might not be the same for everyone. But I just thought it was interesting that um, that, that they, they do cover yeah. it, right? So we've actually t touched upon a lot of different things, um, stemming just from her, just from one op-ed piece. So we hope that you have learned something new. Um, something to think about. And if you have any suggestions, comments, please feel free to email us at the Petri Dish Podcast at gmail.com and visit our Tumblr at the Petri Dish Podcast dot Tumblr dot com.